Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. And with me today, I am delighted to have a uh, a gentleman who has served greatly and um, has some major stories to tell, having served as a detective in the New York uh, Police Department. So with me today, retired New York Police Department detective with multiple books, a podcast, and plenty of stories. Vic Ferrari, thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. P. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's good to, just given your background, uh, and I don't know all of your background, which is which is why you're here. Uh, I would love to hear, you don't necessarily wake up one day and go, I want to be a detective. Although a lot of times little boys go, I want to be a policeman, right? So let's, let's start way back. And, uh, and then we'll get to kind of, holy cow, I can't believe this stuff happens in the New York, you know, <laughs> New York police department. Um, how did you know you wanted to be, to go into the police force? Well, I was born in the late 60s, watching television in the early 70s with my parents. There were all these police and, you know, cop shows and cop movies. And a lot of it had to do with the New York City Police Department. So I was fascinated. Uh, probably about five, my grandfather broke his leg in a snowstorm and two cops brought him home from the emergency room. And I was just fascinated with the uniforms and these tall men carrying my, grand my fragile grandfather into the house. When I got a little older, my mother used to take me to a movie theater that was around the corner from the local police station. And I was fascinated with the police cars. I'd run up to the cars and look at the equipment and mill around the precinct and talk to the cops. And then by age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and go around the neighborhood and conduct manhunts as much as a 10 year old could accomplish. I, I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. My parents wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go right into the police academy. My father, there was a gap between the ages of 18 and 20 before I could get hired. And my father really tried his best to try to get me into the trades, to be an electrician, to become a plumber. Wouldn't do it. And uh, I again, I, I knew what I wanted. And by 21, I was in the police academy and I enjoyed a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. Amazing. And you grew up in New York, a certain area or? Yeah, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City, lower okay. middle class family. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Um, and by 21, you were in it. And um, that's not an easy path. You know, I've I've talked with some EMTs. I've talked, you know, it's I've talked with uh, with some people who have been in the force. It's not an easy path to. Uh, start as a recruit, go through uh, where you you were a beat cop, right? Yeah. And and then you found your way to becoming a detective. Um, talk a little bit about that. What's it like being on the street? Like, was it what you thought it would be at ten years old? You know, you, at twenty one, you were in the academy, and by twenty two, you had seen a lot. Yeah, it was an eye opener because you think you know everything from watching television. 
the police academy, although there was tons of training, it didn't really translate well into after you graduated the academy and went into field training. And then after six months of field training, now you're in a precinct. The, the the thing that stood out to me immediately was the amount of responsibility, the amount of things you were responsible for. And you could screw things up very easily and things could backfire on you very easily if you swam out too far. We used to call it the terrible twos in the NYPD. So before cops, before they have two years on the job, can get themselves in a lot of trouble, but they don't know, know how to get themselves out of that trouble. Whereas as you mature and hopefully learn the ropes and, and the tools of the trade, you can navigate because there's just so many things in New York. I mean, every cop anywhere is responsible for a lot of things, but in New York City, I mean, it's just so diverse and the amount of things going on there, you, the, just the responsibilities are awesome. And, and you mean awesome as in uh, weighty, <laughs> the response. Oh yeah, weighty. Yeah, maybe yeah. Poor choice of words. Absolutely. No, no, it's not. It's a great choice of words because it's one of my favorite words. Because I'll go, wow, awesome. Uh, and the truth is, the responsibilities are uh, awesome. They're hugely weighty. Um, one of the things you just said, and I, I will pause along the way to to just kind of reflect. You know, it took, you call it the terrible twos. It took two years to kind of get to the place of going, oh, now I know how much I actually don't know. Yes. Right. And and I think that that is a huge growth step. The same is true in the martial arts. You know, people who start in the martial arts, uh, they're like, now I'm dangerous. And then after two years, it's like, oh, dang, I'm dangerous. Like, I have much more to learn. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and so the, the whole concept of, I know to, oh, I know what I don't know. In fact, I know, I don't know what I don't know. And I know that there's a lot, I don't know. Um, and I think that's true of leadership as well. I think that that's, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make is that leaders need to recognize that, that it's okay to grow along the way and that, you know, being in the police force, you are in leadership. You are like people are looking at you. So uh, it's OK not to know everything um, and still have a position of authority. Yeah, um, here's the weird thing. So the New York City Police Department hires in bulk at any given time. A small police academy class is 250 recruits. A large one could be over twenty five hundred. So wow. we hire in bulk. Then you go to field training. And uh, it's changed, but in the old days, you would get assigned, it would be you and 50 other rookies would be assigned to a zone and you would cover four or five precincts and you get dropped off on foot posts and, you know, omnipresence, you're supposed to be out there handling calls on your post. If you didn't know what you were doing, you would ask for the training sergeant, he would pull up, he would guide you. And then a couple of times a month, you would actually ride with the training sergeant and another rookie. But when you talk about leadership, what happened, what I saw happen was you would get a lot of time. And it's, it, it goes back to the schoolyard where you'll get a couple of guys or girls that have, you know, they're, they're more sure of themselves or they've got the loudest voice and people start following them. And depending on who you're following can get you in a lot of trouble. And I'll, I'll tell you, so I haven't told this story in years, but it's true. I'm in the police academy and in my sister company. There were a couple of guys that I liked them. They were from the Bronx and, you know, I liked them. They were funny. 
And uh, we all wound up in the same field training unit, but on opposite shifts. So I really didn't see them much, except maybe on my days off, I'd meet them for a beer once in a while. But that was about it. But I liked them. And after field training, you went to a precinct. So, I mean, in the NYPD, we call it a hook or a crane. If you have a crane, you can go wherever you want in the NYPD. A hook, maybe somebody can hook you into a more favorable place. So my dad was a butcher. I didn't know anybody. So I was kind of at the mercy of where I was going to wind up. And one of these guys, it was three of them. One of these guys had an uncle that had some juice, as we call it, some power in the department. And they all wound up together. He, This guy's uncle was able to get them in the same precinct together. And I, I remember asking one of them, like, because I wound up in a hellhole. I wound up in the 4-2 precinct, which is where they filmed the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx. I'm dating myself. And I mean, it was a burned out hellhole. And I, these guys went to another precinct, which was seemed yeah. like more fun. And I'm like, couldn't have got me with you. And he's like, sorry, man, he could only get two guys. And he took us. And they followed this guy and Yada, yada, yada. A couple of years later, um, two of them arrested and all three of them lost their jobs for doing things they shouldn't have done because they followed this guy because he had an uncle that got them someplace. And they were, like we were saying, too sure of themselves mm. and they got themselves in all sorts of trouble. And, you know, it's they all lost their jobs and two got arrested. That's amazing. <laughs> in in the worst sense of the word that's amazing oh in hindsight i'm glad i didn't go with them exactly yeah and i will bet that being in the four two you learned a ton you know you learned about survival you learned you sharpened your instincts i'm i'm guessing that the four two gave you uh some pressure that actually made you a better cop I knew it was dangerous. And when I say dangerous, I don't mean from outside. I mean more from inside. So when I got to the 4-2, it was a dumping ground. So who hmm. people that wound up in the 4-2 were rookie cops like myself that didn't know anybody and guys that had screwed up in other commands and got dumped. Uh, there were a lot of guys from the Vietnam era and that I'm not painting a stigma, uh, stigmatism on the guys from the Vietnam era, but there were guys there that just weren't right. Mm. And I remember the NYPD, when I first got hired, they only drug tested you during um, your probationary period, or they could only test you for cause, meaning a supervisor said, hey, there's some, and you'd have to go up the chain of command to get somebody drug tested. That all changed with a contract negotiation where the union said, okay, we'll, we'll go with random drug testing. It's good for the department. And I'm sure they got something back for it. Once they went to that random drug screening, I mean, there were guys getting marched out of the precinct left and right. And I says, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't right. You know, and the neighborhood, there was nothing really there. I mean, we had to go to other precincts to get something to eat. So I said to myself, I'm not going to be like these middle-aged guys that are just burned out. They had like that thousand yard stare from Nam, like they just had yeah. seen it all and they were never going to leave. And I said, nope, this isn't for me. I got to get the hell out of here. And I did. That's amazing. So where did you go? Because I went to a borough wide unit. Well, it, your options are limited as a rookie in yeah. the NYPD. It's not like television where it's like, I'm just going to put in for a place when you go to it, it's a it's a process. So if you want to get transferred, you have to go to your commanding officer who's not going to meet with you right away. You've got to, it's almost like the mafia. You have to meet with your admin. You've got to go to your regular supervisor who's going to talk to the administrative lieutenant. Why does this guy want to leave? And then you're going to wait. You could wait. I, I've waited months sometimes to get it's called a 57, which is uh, a, a form to get transferred. 
And then he's going to ask you, why do you want to leave? And sometimes they might not want to let you leave because sometimes if you're a good cop and you're producing results, why, why does he want to let this guy leave? Or sometimes they think you want to leave because you know of police corruption and you don't want to say anything, but you don't want to necessarily be there when the shit hits the fan. So then they start looking at you odd, like, why does this guy want to leave? Eventually, I got it signed and I went to a borough. The only place I could go was this borough unit, which was another story because that had a lot of old timers in it, too, when they were cleaning house because they were making too much overtime. So they were replacing the old timers with the rookies, which I wound up getting into another situation because the old timers hated the rookies. So, you know, we're young. We're doing what we're told. And the rookies like, yeah, sure, kid. Do, yeah. Keep doing what they're telling you to do. They're going to screw you, too. So that turned out to be not a favorable assignment. But it's like anything else you learn. I, I learned personality types. I learned to keep my mouth shut, and my ears open. You, you know, it's um, you just learn how to navigate. Yes. Uh, politics happens. Oh, yeah. In, <laughs> in, in many organizations, most, I, I would say. Uh, and um, with that many layers, of course, it's it's going to happen there. Um, I had a question about the union probably being another layer as well, because you're you're not just in the force, you're in a union. So you have to go through representation and 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 there's that hoop to jump through as well let's um let's talk about some of the stuff that you saw and um i mean you wrote one of your books is uh it's cops crime and chaos um so i mean it's like there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes that it's very serious there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes that it's it's like slap your forehead like what how is that even possible um and and so i want to talk about two things one is what did you see that really affected you as you worked your way out of being a rookie and into being a seasoned cop and from being a seasoned cop into choosing to become a detective because that is a a separate path i mean you could have not chosen that and you did um and then somewhere in there, you found a sense of humor or you allowed it to come out because, because you know, what you were seeing was kind of absurd. Well, what I learned is after I got hired and I was moving around these different places, because I did, I jumped around quite a bit in my career. I, I realized that there were different, when I got hired, I thought everyone was the same. And then once I got in there, I realized, well, there's, there's like a couple of different police departments within the police department. So, yeah, it's just at a precinct level. You have different types of cops and you have the lazy ones that, you know, come to work late, leave early and will do the bare minimum. If that, you know, and those are usually the ones that stay in the same place for 20 years. They're in the locker room grumbling. Oh, why are you putting in for that? You're never going to get this. You're never going to get that. It's like if you listen to them, they'll just drag you into the mud. Then you have the cops that well, people in the department, they'll do their job. They're not going to go above and beyond, but they will be there for you when you need them. They'll take the report. They'll do all the necessary stuff, but they're not going to set the world on fire. And then you've got that five or 10% that really 
believes in their craft and tries to evolve and get better at what they're doing and and and, and keep up. I mean, if you if you're fighting crime, you've got to keep up with the criminals and they're smart and they're always changing their style and different scams are coming up. So if you want to be good at what you do, you've got to have your ear to the ground and you've always got to be following them and, and trying to figure out what their next move is. I love this um, because this actually does, you know, I do a lot of leadership work. This parallels um, what we see in major organizations and sometimes even small startups where you've got a small group of uh, complainers. And I mean, even in families, you can see it. There's There are those that go, why do you even want to want that? Why would you even bother? It's too much trouble. And what they're saying is it's too much trouble for them. Um, and and they don't want to see anybody else, you know, sort of sort of climb. You've got then you didn't you didn't uh call it this. It is known as this in um in the corporate arena is the formally compliant. Those that show up and they will do what's expected, they will do only what's expected. So they are formally compliant. They're not going to do much more, they're not going to contribute beyond. And then you've got those that excel. They are, and I loved what you said, which is they believe in their craft. Um, because um I don't think that I don't think that those of us not in the police force really think of it as a craft. And I love that you called it that because it 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 does elevate uh the work that you do, that you've done, you know, that you are staying ahead, that you are learning the different techniques that you are putting yourself into it and i think that is what makes you a standout right that it's like five to ten percent of the people are going to be really working on themselves personally and on themselves professionally uh you're one of them that's awesome so uh, (laughs) you had a lot to shake off (laughs) like because people are people are out to like those that are that are in the climb and know that they are in the climb get mud slung at them big time. So you had a lot to shake off. Um, talk a little bit about about what it took to to do that climb and to become a detective, and then we can shift into some of the other fun stuff that you've that you've uncovered along the way. Because um, I personally, I'm a fan of the absurd. And, and right. And and so when you can, when you have the perspective, and this is all about perspective, because you pull yourself out and you go, I am watching what's going on. Yeah, I'm a part of it, but I am watching what's going on. And there's an absurdity here. How much fun is this? How ridiculous is this? How do we move forward, uh, maybe in spite of it? Yeah. So we're talking about earlier about when I went to that borough unit, I was always a car guy. I grew up in a neighborhood where we probably had more car thieves per capita than any place in the United States. And I worked in a gas station as a teenager. So you always had guys blowing through there with stolen cars, looking to sell the car, looking to sell parts, looking to get gas. So I knew what to look for with stolen cars. I was always getting into car chases in uniform because I knew what to look for. I go to this borough unit and I get stuck in a DUI unit and I absolutely hated it. There's no winning dealing with drunks. They want to fight. They want to cry. They get sick. It's just a losing proposition. But while I was making my 
drunk driving arrest, I was picking off car thieves. Well, we had an auto loss in the unit there, and those guys hated me. And I got confronted a couple of times in the park, like, you're making us look bad. I'm like, go make some stolen car arrests. Isn't that the unit you're in? So I, I realized it's like, I can just kind of hang out in this pack and not get my balls busted. Or I can just say, I really don't care. I know I'm doing the right thing and I'm just going to keep going with it. And that's what I did. And uh, I wound up going to a precinct. I got put in a plainclothes unit where we were expected to do robberies, stolen cars, burglaries. I excelled in that. And then I fell into a trap because they they had started beefing up the narcotics divisions in the NYPD. When the Giuliani administration came in, they realized that quality of life crimes are fueled by drugs. Mm. Let's beef up narcotics. Let's get these street people off the street that are selling drugs. And everybody started pissing in my ear. Oh, you should put in for narcotics. You should put in for narcotics. And I said, yeah, you know, and I rarely do what I'm told. <laughs> I said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to put in for narcotics. And it was a bad fit. I absolutely hated it. I was there 14 months. All we did was buy and bust operations, which is fun at first. But when you're, you're locking up 10, 15 people at a time, it's the same people doing the same thing. It got boring. And then on top of that, there was a health factor w- with it because you're locking up street people that have AIDS, hepatitis C. A lot of them are intravenous drug users. This is in the early 90s. AIDS was, you know, people were watching people basically disintegrate. And I'm saying to myself, I do not want to get stuck with a needle. I always had a cold in narcotics because everybody's coughing on you. So Mm. I had to go up the chain of command to get out of narcotics. And that was a huge monumental task because I got pulled aside several times. Why do you want to leave? Is there corruption? I'm like, no, I just don't like it here. Took a step back, went to a precinct, kept doing my car thing. And eventually I went back into that borough unit with a better supervisor and started making car arrests. And then I got the attention of the auto crime division. I put in an application. And that's where I spent my last 10 years as a detective in the auto crime division. Amazing. That's amazing. So um, (laughs) you sort of... You sort of like leapt from, well, I was doing this and then I became a detective. It's like, well, sometimes you got to take a step backward to go forward. Sometimes, I mean, I knew if I was going to stay in narcotics, I wasn't going to, I would have gotten my detective shield. I would have been promoted, but I would have been miserable. And and my career would have been narcotics. And then more than likely, I would have went to a detective squad in a precinct like you see in Barty Miller or NYPD blue. And I didn't think that was my thing. I I want, I wanted to get involved with organized crime. I was always fascinated by organized crime. So that's why I took a step back and took the risk of going to a precinct, starting all over again, basically unplugging and rebooting and then trying to get back into organized crime a different way. That's amazing. So, uh, and that's a, you talked about the, kind of going down the stolen car route um organized crime overlaps deeply with that then question mark like <laughs> is that oh, yeah. is that yeah yeah new york city when, when in the mid 90s new york city was averaging over 150,000 stolen vehicles a year so some get exported some are for joyriding, but the vast majority some are shipped out of the country but the vast majority of vehicles are stolen for their parts and it, it, it's, it is the stolen car industry. So look at it this way. You crash your car, you've got a newer car, you crash it, and you go to Body Shop A, and Body Shop A tells you, 
I'll have your car back in two weeks and you got to pay the thousand dollar deductible. You go to body shop B and he says, I'll have your car ready by Thursday and don't worry about the deductible. You're going to go to body shop B. I mean, it's just the average person. Well, body shop B, what they're doing is they're taking in steals or they've got guys stealing cars for them. They're taking the parts off the parts. They make a phone call for your 2017 Honda Accord. The parts are waiting there the next day. They slap the parts on, paint it. Here's your car. And they're going to work the thing out with the adjuster where you don't have to pay the deductible. Okay. <laughs> well, the parts aren't costing them anything. So yeah, the parts, yep. had they ordered That's those parts from the manufacturer, it might've been $3,000 in parts. They yeah. paid Anthony 200 bucks for a car. And that car, not only are those parts going to be on your car, they've got extra, they've got, they've got leftovers for the next guy that comes in with a Honda Accord that took a back hit. So they can take that, you know, the doors yeah. or. Amazing. Well, the mob, the mob, the mob was, you know, they played a big part of that. They owned all, a, a lot of the junkyards, salvage yards, body shops. See, I never think about that. That's amazing. That's great. You are listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. Wayne Purnell. You know you are bigger than the life you are leading. It really is time to attend to that thing you've wanted to do or have, but you've been putting off. It's time to step into that dream you've parked for someday. It's time to claim true well-being, both personally and professionally, without giving up the success that got you here. It's time to check out Dr. Purnell's signature small group retreat, the Exponential Success Summit. Explore ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Seats are extremely limited as this is a very special small group event. www.ExponentialSuccessSummit.com. Let's talk uh, crimes, uh, cops, crimes, and chaos. Let's talk a little bit about that because... <laughs> At some point you went, okay, this is absurd. Um, and some of the stuff I've seen is ridiculous. And so let's um, l- let's talk a little bit about like what left you scratching your head at night or after you got out, um, you retired and you're like, oh my gosh, I have stories. Well, when I, when I set out to write these police books, the two things I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get anybody divorced. And I didn't want to get anybody fired or in trouble. So I do change the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks as not to sing, uh, you know, point anybody out, shine light on too many people, because that's not me. I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy with the people I hated or couldn't stand. Yeah, but I'm not going to I'm not going to stand there with a bully pulpit and embarrass them at the same time. That's not me. But there are a lot of characters in the NYPD and a lot of things do happen behind the scenes that nobody knows about. So when you get the first thing they teach you when you get out of um, field, well, even in field training, the first thing they teach you when you get to an NYPD commander precinct is if you if you're working the TS, which is the switchboard, if somebody calls up for a cop and they're not or any NYPD member and if they're not there. All you say is he or she is out in the field. I'll take a message. You don't say I just missed them. They didn't come in today. They're out in the field. I'll take a message. That's it. So in this one place that I worked, you had a rookie cop on the TS. The guy's wife pulls up looking for him and he says, oh, no, he went on. He went out on the precinct fishing charter. 
She goes, fishing charter? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're running a fishing charter out in Long Island. So she goes, oh, yeah, I forgot. Where is that? Rookie cop doesn't know any better. He, right, he, gives, her the, he gives her the marina information out in Long Island, right? The cop is cheating on his wife, and he went on the fishing charter with his girlfriend. So at the end of the day, the boat's coming into the dock, and the wife is coming into the pier, and the wife is on the dock screaming at him in Spanish. He's got his arm around his girlfriend. He's like, oh, shit. He doesn't want to face the music. He runs to the other side of the boat and jumps off. This guy's out of shape. He starts swimming to the next marina. He finally gets over there, and he's out of breath, and he knows the wife is going to come and beat his ass. So he, pret he, he pretends he's having a heart attack. So then there's people on top of him doing the, you know, CPR. The wife yeah. knocks a guy off of him that's trying to do CPR and starts slapping the shit out of him. And he finally gets up and he had to go home with his wife. The girlfriend escaped. She she jumped in the car of another off-duty cop and took her home. And then, you know, there was hell to pay back at the precinct because how did she know? Who, the, you know, who, who answered that phone? It was like, there was like a big investigation behind the scenes that who ratted him out. Oh, uh, lots of drama. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it all starts with a bad choice to go on a fishing charter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Amazing. Um, what else did you see out there? The, you know, there's, there had to have been, uh some bungled kind of investigations that turned out okay um because i've I, I do know enough uh behind the scenes stories of some other um law enforcement agencies where things are sent chain of command is completely messed up evidence is <laughs> <laughs> is sorted out and finally like ta-da the end result is okay but wow along the way there are so many places that it could have been that it could have gone badly yeah it, well a lot of times that boils down to incompetence yeah. sometimes it's a simple mistake and other times it's a moron handling something oh god i'm trying to remember i mean this is decades ago but i remember one time i was on a trial God, for a burglary suspect, and it boiled down to something with the fingerprints. And I didn't lift the fingerprints. I just, I think I was involved in the arrest or something. And uh, we had this incompetent guy that, that was the fingerprint guy in the precinct. This is before they went to borough uh, evidence collection teams. You had a back in the day, you had a print car, which was a cop that was trained in fingerprints. And, Mm. often weren't very good and they would go, they would go around after a past burglary or, or an auto break-in and they'd sprinkle the pixie dust around right. and try to lift a print so we had this boob and he was and uh i remember we were on trial and the district attorney i testified to something about the dates of something it was a series of burglaries that i think they were trying to link this guy to or he was on trial for and i remember the district attorney saying to me you got the dates all wrong and were you even there and but you know like questioning you know like i was purging myself i said no i i, I have it in my memo book she's like i don't know because the print guy testified the other day to this and of course conveniently he went on vacation so this clown is nowhere to be found i got the district attorney looking at me funny so i'll never forget this was on a friday we broke for the for monday on my own time i went back to the precinct and i had to go 
behind the desk. And then we had a basement where they used to keep all sorts of records. I mean, it was like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's underwear was down there. And I had to find, well, he was a police commissioner for a while. I went in, I, I, I went down into the basement. And I got dusty and dirty because this burglary had happened a, a couple of years in the past. Yep. I had to find this print log. It was a book and go through it. And that moron that went on vacation, he got the dates wrong. It wasn't me. So I grabbed that book like it was. I felt like Indiana Jones unearthing the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, I told I told the lieutenant I got at the desk officer. I said, I'm taking because you can't take it home. <laughs> he goes, tell you what I'm going to do. He goes, I'm going to lock it up in the locker Monday morning. You can go. He goes, I promise no one's going to touch it because I was so upset. I didn't want this thing to disappear again. Mm -hmm. He gave me the book. I had to sign it out. I went down to court and I showed her. She goes, and she apologized to me. She goes, yeah, he, he's, he's the one that screwed up. But yeah, it's um, and it didn't affect the case because I was correct. But yeah, you, you have to be careful. I mean, you you have to dot your I's and cross your T's. You know what I mean? If you don't know, don't make things up. Just say, I don't know. You know, that'll go a lot further than trying to bullshit somebody. And I think that's a that's a huge lesson for anybody. Right. That it's like if you don't know, don't make it up. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your books. You've got you've got four of them out there now. Probably another one in the works. Um, and what what are some of your favorite stories out of those books? They're all my children. <laughs> When I got into when I retired from the NYPD, I became a cop again down in Florida. I absolutely hated it. I re-retired and I was bored out of my mind. And my friends and family, like, you got all these wild stories about your NYPD career. You, you can tell a story. Why don't you just start writing these things down? And I said, All right, let, let me see what I can do with this. And my my NYPD books, at least, there's no beginning, middle, or end. I don't like to write in chronological order. I'm not that disciplined. So my all my NYPD books is you'll pick up one of my books, you'll open up to a chapter, and it's a chapter with a topic, and then there's a series of stories in it. So one of my books, I have a chapter called Crossing Over the Dark Side. That deals with police corruption and cops that I know that went bad and the way the NYPD handles police corruption. Or I'll have a chapter, Practical Jokers things that went on behind the scenes in the locker room that people would never associate with screwy thing cops are doing. Or like you you had mentioned a couple of times, the NYPD's flying circus, cops, crime and chaos. There's a story in there. There was this Irish cop. He was the biggest partier in the world. The Spanish cops used to call him El Diablo because if you worked with him, you were going to convert to Christianity, go to rehab or get divorced. I mean, the guy was just <laughs> he had the energy. Of 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 a of a two year old like he just he, middle aged guy and just always partying going to Atlantic City and in the book there's a story he's in Midtown he's in a Midtown bar he's talking to two floozies and he's he's liquored up and uh, one of these handsome cab operators you know with the top hat and the felt vest right. they they drive you around Central Park for four hundred dollars for twenty minutes. One of these handsome cab operators comes into the bar to use the men's room. And El Diablo says, hey, you mind if I take secretariat for a ride? And the guy goes, yeah, sure. The guy goes to the bathroom. El Diablo tells the two floozies, come on, ladies. He's a friend of mine. Next thing you know, El Diablo puts the two girls in the, in, in the handsome cab. He kicks out the blocks. He gives the horse a crack in the ass with the whip. And he steals the horse and carriage. And at first, it's going well. And clippity-clop, the thing is hugging Central Park. And... 
soon it, it what happens is the horse figures out that there's an idiot behind the wheel and doesn't know what he's doing. So the horse says, screw this. I'm going to the barn to get some oats. So the horse starts galloping. El Diablo didn't grow up on a farm. He grew up in the Bronx. So he can't stop this thing. It's very dangerous when a horse and carriage starts going through red lights. Yes. Okay. So now you got the two floozies in the back screaming their heads off, like, stop this goddamn thing. As this horse and carriage is heading for Central Park, two, the uh, the handsome cab operator had two friends that were out there. Go, hey, there goes Vinny's horse and carriage. They get in pursuit. So now you got a runaway horse and carriage going through Central Park. It was like a Ben-Hur chariot race. What the handsome cab operators did was it's kind of like a Yonkers raceway move. One got in back, one got in front, and they were finally able to slow down the horse and carriage. They stop it. They get out. They start smacking El Diablo around because they don't know he's a cop. They think he's just some clown that stole the horse and carriage. He's like, no, no, I'm a cop. Stop, stop. They finally get on their cell phones. They call the, uh, the owner. The owner shows up. The cops from Central Park Precinct show up and the guy wants to press charges. And El Diablo goes, if you take me to an ATM right now, I will give you five hundred dollars and make this go away. The guy goes, you take me to an ATM? He said, yeah, they go to the ATM. El Diablo takes out five hundred bucks, hands it to the guy. And the whole thing goes away. But this guy, we used to say he used to have like the Prince of Darkness running interference for him because the shit that he would get involved in and he never got it's like it never stuck. Amazing. And uh, yeah, the take me to an ATM and we'll just make it go away. Oh, man. Um, you've got you've got other stories like I, I I love this. This the you've got you must have. I don't know if we were to sit around with a with a glass of bourbon, you would probably just come out with tons of. Well, this was the most interesting arrest I ever made, or um, <laughs> or more El Diablo stories. What uh, in your experience, like you know, you went from rookie hood to detective hood to starting over in Florida, which I didn't know about, and and then and then into book writing, and you know, in reflecting on your twenty plus year experience, um. What was what would you say was the most interesting uh, arrest you made? I was involved in an international car shipping case where we had Asian nationals out of Brooklyn shipping 20 stolen Audi A6s, between 25 and 30 stolen Audi A6s a month to Shanghai. We had a Jamaican middleman from the Bronx that was facilitating this. He would farm out the orders to these uh, different steel teams that he had. The Asians were paying the Jamaican $5,000 a vehicle. The Jamaican was paying the car thieves between $500 and $1,000 per vehicle. The cars were stolen, parked on the street, left to cool off. Then they would go out to this warehouse in Brooklyn, an industrial area. They would bring in two, three cars at a time. They would put two cars in per shipping container, let the air out of the tires so the car would sit low. Then they would build a wooden frame above it and hoist one or two other cars. So they were putting three to four stolen Audis. Per shipping container, excuse me, then they would have a, a legit trucking company take it out to Newark, New Jersey. They would put on trains, railed across the United States to Long Beach, California, and they were loaded on ships. And then they were shipped to Shanghai. So we're up on multiple wiretaps. We had, and that's the beauty of the NYPD with 30, 30 to 35,000 members. We had Chinese cops. 
that can speak Mandarin and Cantonese. So we had them monitoring wiretaps. We had Spanish detectives monitoring the car thieves. And then what we quickly figured out, in addition to this international car theft ring, our, our thieves were in the murder for hire business. They were, they were just bumping off people for vehicles or somebody pissed them off or owed the money. Or in a couple of times, it was a contract hit. Wow. So when we took that case down, we were able to clear about 15 homicides. Wow. Wow. Um, it, you know, it's it's interesting that when you get into a business, you do your business, you do your job, you do it well, you, you know, and that's for each of us. You get in and there's almost this very casual nature about, well, yeah, this is what I do. And you're you're telling this story, and it's like, well, yeah, it's the murder for hire business, and we we busted these people, and we took down you know fifteen hitmen in the in the process. It's like that's just what we did. It, it's kind of amazing. So <laughs> it's just it's kind it's amazing, of amazing while you're doing it. You know, it's um, you know, it, it's it, it, I picked the right profession for me. Yeah, because I'm a curious person. I always got to know the next thing. And I love, you know, working on these big criminal investigations where you just it's like an onion and you just keep peeling it and things are unraveling and you just keep it. It's more and more and more. And I mean, I I was like a kid leading up to Christmas, you know, with some of these cases where I just couldn't believe what we were uncovering. That must be fun. That must be like because it's like, aha. And then. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's like, oh, dang, is that what it led to? That that must be that must be a ton of fun. So, I mean, you, what is next for you? You know, you've had all this excitement. There's been adrenaline rush. There's been um, now I've had enough. There's been uh, you're pouring your your stories into into books. I know you have a podcast. I know you have uh, books. What else? Like what's next for you? What's exciting in your life? Writing the books right now and promoting them. I mean, that that's that's been a lot of fun. It's work, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I I've always said I get to live vicariously through me and talk about my cases and experiences, and I get to watch other people's reactions. And I think that's cool. I'm sure at some point, me being me, I'm gonna get bored with this and, and go on to something else. What that is, I have no idea. Okay. But right now I enjoy it. It's fun. You know, it keeps me busy. It keeps me out of trouble. So uh, I'm just going to keep doing it until I run out of stories or ideas or it bores me. You know, I'm sure like anything else, you know, it's like you watch your favorite television show like Seinfeld and I've watched interviews with Seinfeld. and They're like, well, it was enough already. I'm like, but how could it be enough? You know, like you guys were so funny, but then you realize it's like it's a job. You know what I mean? These people are getting up to go to work. You know, it's after a while you kind of. All right. This is enough of this. I want to do something else. Yep, it is a job. And as long as, you know, it's fulfilling, that's great. And when it stops being fulfilling, something else. Um, That's awesome. So uh, two questions then at this point. What didn't I ask you that you were hoping we would cover? And part two is where do people find out more about your books? And I do have a link that I will, will put into the show notes um, if there's an easy way to finding you, you know, talk about that too. This was an unusual interview for me. I do, um, depending on the week, anywhere between five and 10 interviews a week to promote my books. Yeah. This was definitely a unique interview. You asked a lot of questions that people hadn't asked. 
Um, and that's a good thing because sometimes I get bored doing yeah. an interview because I'm telling the same stories over and over again. And sometimes I'm like, Jesus, I think maybe I'm playing myself out here. You know, it's like I, I like do some of these interviews out. with my eyes closed, but you did a good job. Thank you. I like to find out about the people that the people behind the stories. Like, you know, I I get it. I get something in in a bio sheet. That's awesome. Um, and there's a human behind there. And so, you know, what interests me is who's the human behind the bio, right? So, uh, so I do. I try and I try and go a little deeper. And um, well, you wanted the stories, which is fine. But you also asked. Um, you you were more interested about how the department works and personality types and how the politicking and a lot of people don't ask that so that that was good for me because I got to t- I hadn't I had told a couple of stories I hadn't thought of in decades so that was cool. That cool as far as my books are concerned all my books if you go to Amazon and you type in my name Vic V I C Ferrari like the car my video library will come up. All my books are in paperback for $10. They're behind the scenes. Look at the New York City Police Department, $2.99 ebook download. And if they want to get a hold of me on social media, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at VicFerrari50. 50. I love it. That's awesome. Was there a story that I the that you're like? What do you oh, want to hear? You just, you will get point me in a direction. What kind of story you want to hear? Do you want to hear funny? Do you want to hear let's go dark? funny? Let's go. Do you I mean, funny. Yeah, because dark is like dark. Yeah, no, I get it. Dark I don't write dark too often, but I do. But I do. I, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of quick funny ones. Okay. So there was a guy we used to work with. Wasn't the brightest of bulbs. And if there's one way you can get in trouble in the NYPD, it's losing your firearm, your ID card, or your shield. So most cops or NYPD members go to great lengths. Because if you lose one of those three, depending on who you are and your record and everything else, you can lose up to 30 vacation days and be put on a year of disciplinary probation. So this one guy was going to wear a cocktail in one night. He lived in a shitty neighborhood. He didn't. He was afraid of a burglary. So he hid his gun in the one place he didn't think anybody would look, which was his oven. Goes out, has a couple of cocktails, comes back four hours, nine beers later, little liquored up. Hungry, decides to preheat his oven to 425 or whatever to make some frozen pizzas and doesn't take the gun out. So he's on the couch, channel surfing, trying to find a show on television. It's a five shot, 38, little chief. Got five rounds in there with gunpowder. The oven's heating up. Bam, bam. The rounds start going off in the stove. I'm sure the first one, he was like, what the hell is that? The second one is I know what that is. Had to climb out of climb out of the apartment on his hands and knees, call 911 on himself, emergency service, had to show up, yada, yada, yada. He lost 30 vacation days a year probation, and he had to buy a new firearm. Yeah, the case of the cooked 38. <laughs> All right, you want to hear one more funny one? I do. This is funny and dark. So when you're a rookie cop, you get stuck with all the shitty assignments. It's just the way it is. And nobody likes getting stuck with the DOAs in New York. Like you were t- we were talking about Manhattan earlier. Say, God forbid, someone dies in their apartment. Not a suspicious death, just someone passes. The police show up. They do their investigation. The detectives come. Once it's deemed, it's probably not a crime scene. You got to wait for the medical examiner to come to officially even though the person's dead and EMS says they're dead, you have to wait for the medical examiner. There's only a couple of medical examiners. They're overworked. They're responding around the city at any given day. you got multiple people dead in New York for a lot of different reasons, natural, unnatural. It's called sitting on a DOA. So the cop that gets assigned that, it's often the young guys. 
or girls, you're going to be there with this DOA in this apartment or this house for hours. And it smells, it's nasty. So you got this young cop, this old man dies in his apartment, in a housing project. He had just died a couple hours earlier. I guess he had a friend that used to check on him every day. He didn't answer the door. The guy recently died. Cops show up. EMS shows up and this rookie cop who's lazy. It's a Friday night. He wants to go out drinking. He tells the two EMTs, hey, can't you take him? They said, we can't take the body. You know that he's got to die. He's got to die in public view for us to take him. You got to wait for the medical examiner and they leave. This cop does not want to get stuck with this body. So about half hour later, there's a call, same building, same floor of that building of a cardiac. The two EMTs didn't really leave the area. It's the same two. They go to the same building, go up the elevator, come running out with all their equipment. There's the cop in the hallway with the dead body. And they're looking at him and they go, what happened? He goes, you're not going to believe this. You guys left. I was doing my paperwork. The guy jumped up and said, oh, shit, ran through the apartment and died again on the floor. They go, you dragged him through the apartment. He's got rigor mortis now. He's in the same position that he was in the bed. So they're fighting. The sergeant shows up. Their story is a hell of a lot more credible than this old man came to life and ran through the apartment. Nowadays, he probably would have been arrested and been on the front page of the New York Post. Back then, he got he lost 30 vacation days, put on a year probation. He got transferred out of borough. (laughs) Yes, dark and funny. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I do appreciate that. Vic, I appreciate having you on. Um, uh, just like a, a little glimpse behind the scenes and, um, uh, you know, it, it offers a different perspective for me, for our audience. I do, you know, tie a lot of this back to leadership. I tie a lot of this back to humans are humans, right? We, we, we do what we do. We do what we do well. We focus on the things that interest us. Um, and for you, curiosity, I mean, that's one of the that's one of the core values that I have as well. It's one of the things that drives me. Um, uh, for me, curiosity keeps keeps you out of judgment. Like that's one of the things that I talk sure. about is, is like if you stay curious and in this place of wonder, I wonder what. Uh, you can't be in a place of judging either the the context, the scene, the other person, or yourself. I wonder what's next, right? So, um, so it's really important. And for you, that drove you as a detective, and I think that that's amazing. And um, I look forward to reading your books. Is there anything else that you would like to uh, punctuate this? this podcast with is there anything else you wanted to add at this point no i listen i appreciate the opportunity this was a good pod this was a fun podcast actually to go on and i appreciate it yeah i appreciate having you vic thank you so much with that i will just say that uh my guest today vic ferrari uh he is available on all of his books and other materials are available on amazon uh, go to Amazon and uh, look up Vic Ferrari. Go to social at Vic Ferrari 50 or 50. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you'll see him. So, Vic, again, thank you for, for being here. Thank you. All righty. This is One Sharp Sword Cutting Through to What Matters Most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell. We'll see you here next time. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the Breakthrough Success Coach and your Powerful Presence Mentor.